Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went, and found just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. This, um, when I was talking with Jim about um, various encounters with Christ that we might want to use, um, I'd, I'd come to this one, and I, but I said, Jim, I don't know, is this too Eastery? Like, we just had Easter. People kind of, we go through all this stuff at Easter time. Um, and there's so much in this passage that is symbolic and metaphorical and, and demonstrates the messianic mission of Christ. And there, so there's so much here. I'm not going to try to unpack all of that. Um, so we're going to oversimplify today, as we usually have to do in the Gospels. But I do want to point out a couple of things. And I like this encounter with Jesus. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm thinking of these crowds. Um, the crowds around Jerusalem, there were, there were a ton of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover was like Thanksgiving and Christmas and Fourth of July all rolled into one massive holiday. And unlike our holidays, these were not holidays designed to be celebrated at home with family. These were holidays designed to be celebrated in groups, in, preferably in Jerusalem, as close to the temple as you could get. That was the nature of this holiday. And so you had crowds everywhere. Um, I, I don't know what the historical estimates would be, but, but some would say there's a million people in and around Jerusalem um, for, for the Passover feast. Anybody who could come would come to Jerusalem, if they, if they at all could. And so you have these crowds who are there, and many of them have no idea what's happening. And you have this specific crowd with Jesus, and they do know what's happening, mostly. And, and so they, they come with him into the city, 
And we know the story. They lay their coats down on the road. They lay palm, uh, palm fronds and, and on the road. They're shouting. They're cheering. Other passages, this is in all four Gospels, by the way. There, there's not many events that are in all four Gospels. This is one of them. Other passages say there were, there were crowds in front of him. There were people behind him shouting. Some say they were shouting Hosanna, which would just be a different way of the, the words that we have here, depending on how you want to translate them. All of these things were designed to point to a single moment where the coming Messiah would enter Jerusalem, the holiest city, and he would put his stamp on it, and he would literally set up a kingdom. That's what the Messiah, that's what they were waiting for the Messiah to do, is come and establish this kingdom. In this case, they'd have to throw out the Romans, and that was going to be a bonus. Get rid of the Romans, establish the new kingdom of David. And so these crowds with Jesus shouting, Hosanna, shouted, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they were pointing to. This is what they were expecting. And we see Jesus' reaction to that was, was by and large positive, right? The, the Pharisees say to him, or the religious teachers say, you've got to keep these crowds quiet. I'm going to explain why in, in just a second. They're, you've got to keep them quiet. And Jesus says, I, I can't keep them quiet. There's something happening here. If they weren't shouting, nature would shout. And it's impossible to quiet these voices of this crowd. And so I, I want to kind of preface all that I'm going to say with the idea that this crowd, at its core, knew what Jesus, who he was. They did not know what that would mean for them. They, they missed some of the things, and they had the wrong expectations for what Jesus was actually going to do right then. And there's specific reasons for that that we're going to go into. Um, so I, but, I, but I don't want to be, I'm going to say a lot of things about how they missed this or they missed that. And I don't want to go too far into that because Jesus himself says the crowd had it right in the big scheme of things. They understood he was God's anointed. He was coming in the name of the Lord. And he would do all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. So we'll start with that. There's another crowd a few days later that we're going to talk about as we get further into this. And that crowd was the one in Pilate's courtyard shouting, crucify him. They too had some things right and some things wrong about what Jesus was there for. And they had a completely different reaction. So we're going to take a look at both of these crowds. And what is it that they got right? What is it that they got wrong about Jesus? And how does that teach us today about what do we, what do we think about the Messiah? And how do we respond? And what do we expect? So for those of you who don't, who don't know, um, which is probably most of you, my, my um, formal training is in social psychology. So um, social psychology is the study of how people interact with each other um, and how they influence each other. And so this is one of the reasons when, when Jim starts saying encounters with Jesus, I start thinking about crowds rather than people, um, because to me crowds are very fascinating. There's a, a famous experiment in psychology that some of you may know about. And the idea is that you're, you're showing this video. The video is about a 30, 45 seconds long. And in the video are six people. Three of them are wearing white shirts. Three of them are wearing black shirts. And they're all bouncing basketballs to each other. And your job as the participant in this experiment is to count how many basketballs, how many passes the white team makes to each other. And this is tricky because, well, the people in white shirts are passing the ball to each other. The people in black shirts are also passing a different ball to each other. And so you're trying to keep track of white shirts, black shirts, which ball, you, you count them. And there's a certain number of passes, and you're trying to get the right answer. 
And so it's a, it's a bit of a tricky task, although it's not impossible. And you can find this, um, you can find this online and try it yourself. But as with, as with every good psychology experiment, the experiment's actually completely different. Because about halfway through this video, a man in a gorilla costume walks into the middle of all of this basketballs passing around, a full, full gorilla costume. He walks into the middle of the shot, he stops, he faces the camera, he thumps his chest, and then he turns and slowly walks out of the shot. And you can't miss the gorilla. Um, and he's not trying to, he's in the shot for about nine seconds, and it's like I said, it's a 30, 40 second clip. Except about half the people who watch this clip for the first time don't see the gorilla. So at the end of the, they, they, you know, they're counting all the passes, and at the end, they're asked, how many passes did the players in white shirts make to each other? And they're, you know, putting out the answer, 14, 18. I actually don't know what it is. And then the next question is the one that's going to throw you. It's like, did you see a gorilla? And about, it, you know, if you saw the gorilla, that question makes perfect sense. Yeah, I saw the gorilla. He was right there. He's obvious. Um, but about half the people in the experiment don't see the gorilla. So when they're asked, hey, did you, did you see a gorilla? They're, they're kind of like, I don't even know why you're asking me this, right? We are counting basketball passes. What do you mean about a gorilla? And then try to convince them, right, that, yeah, there was a gorilla in the shot for nine seconds. Um, didn't you see it? No, I didn't see it at all. And it's a, it's a powerful example. Of course, now that you watch it, any, all of you will see the gorilla, whether you're counting passes or not, because you know there's a gorilla, and you can't miss him. Um, and you'll be shocked, and you'll think, oh, who are these crazy, you know, not-so-bright people who didn't see this gorilla? He's right there. So, um, so you just have to take my word for it. About half the people, when they first see the video, don't see the gorilla. And it seems impossible, right? It seems impossible. But the reason they don't see the gorilla is because it's so far outside their expectations. They have expectations of what they're doing, right? And they're really working hard to do it properly. And they don't see the other things that are going on. And it's this, I mean, we hear this so many times. Um, this is why I'm so excited about self-driving vehicles, right? Is because how many times do people get in accidents and they say, I didn't see them. It's a person walking there. It's a person on a bike. It's whatever. I didn't see them. Um, and then the rest of us, you know, say, how in the world could you not have seen them? So we're going to talk about the expectations that this crowd specifically, and then a little bit to the, the crowd later in the week yelling, crucify him. What are the expectations that they had that became a filter so that when they look at Jesus, even if they see the Messiah, they don't really see the Messiah, not the way he wanted to be seen, not the way he really was. They saw him through a filter. And I want to specifically draw your attention to um, the, the last paragraph here in our scripture reading on page 8, verse 41 and 42. Because I've thought, we, we, we teach the triumphal entry of Jesus, which is this passage. We, we teach it um, in, in Sunday school and in, in our messages as, as this culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and I don't want to dispel that, because it is that. But Jesus himself had mixed emotions about this entry. And we see that in verse 41. This is why I like the Luke passage, because this, these verses are only in Luke. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so we see this dichotomy of Jesus praising his followers, saying, No, they must cry out. This, this moment in history demands volume. This moment in history demands recognition. And yet he weeps 
when he sees the city and says, I wish you understood what was really happening. I wish you understood where peace really came from. And we're going to come back to that in a little while. So there were three types of expectations that caused these audiences to miss who Jesus really was and what he, not, I don't want to say who he was. They saw who he was, what he was here to do. Why did they miss what he was here to do? And, and the first is that they were conditioned by generations of cultural traditions. The, the Jewish uh, cultural tradition is, is very rich, and it's one of the richest we have because this society is one of the oldest that we have, possibly the oldest continuous society that still exists. And it's a fascinating study. This is a, this is a whole other sermon, but it's a fascinating um, example in history because when we look way back to the early days of the Jewish culture, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And we see them as this, this society of slaves in the grandest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. And the Egyptians, of course, knew that they were a grand empire. Um, the Jewish people did not yet. Um, and the, the Egyptians were determined to maintain their empire. And they were going to establish their society through history, through the future, future ages, by building things. They built the pyramids. They built cities. They built um, treasure cities. They built monuments, cities of monuments. And, and what do we have today from, from that specific Egyptian culture? Now, we still have Egypt. But from that specific culture, we just have the buildings. The culture's gone. But we have the buildings that they built. But they did not succeed in their task to, to maintain their culture. The, the Jewish people leaving Egypt, God told them, we're going to preserve your culture through stories. And I, we're going to have stories, and you're going to tell these stories to your children, and you're never going to stop telling these stories to your children. And if they're going to build monuments, they're going to be simple monuments, stacks of rocks near the road, stacks of rocks in the river. Um, one, you know, a tent that they can carry around with them, and, and eventually a single building, a, a temple. But really, they're going to preserve their culture through stories. And we fast forward thousands of years, and we still have that culture. And they're still telling those same stories. And, and the stories included a, a promised land, right? We're going to have our own borders. We're going to have an earthly kingdom, and we're going to have security. We're going to worship a God who maintains a physical presence in our midst. We're going to have a city called Jerusalem, and we're going to have a temple in that city. And that's where God lives. And, and the stories also include things like the pillar of fire and the pillar of clouds, where, where there's this physical manifestation of God with them, so that their sense of God was, was, was somebody in their midst. They had civil structure, civil authorities, religious and political, that were designed to bring God's guidance to the people. The, the highest level uh, was, was the high priest, and he actually wore stones that were designed to help him communicate with God and understand the will of God and so that he could translate that to the people. When they finally got a king, God told them who the king would be, and, and one of the roles of that king would, was going to be to, to enforce God's laws among the people. So for all of, so this was, the, this was the tradition. So when Jesus comes on the scene and those who acknowledge him as the Messiah, this is, this is the filter that they're looking at him for. And there's nothing, all of these things were accurate. In fact, God had put most of these things in place and said, this, these are symbols of, of who I am and how I want to relate to my people. So there was not, it was not the case that they had come up with all these faulty notions. These were accurate notions of, of who God was and what the Messiah was going to do, but they were incomplete. And this over-reliance on these symbols rather than the actual person who showed up is what got in the way of them seeing 
who Jesus really was and what, what the role of the Messiah was going to be in their society. And, and ironically, it sounds extremely familiar to us, right? We, we have a, a rich cultural tradition. Now, our cultural tradition goes back, you know, four to 600 years, depending on how you're counting. Nowhere near the thousands of years, um, but, it, but it impacts us in the same way. We have a promised land, right? I'm, and I'm th- when I say we, I'm, I'm thinking of us in kind of our, our 21st century American culture, right? We've got a sovereign land where we can be our own people and we don't have to worry about um, being overtaken by others. And in fact, depending on where you go in American history, you find manifest destiny and things that are extremely similar to the idea of a promised land in the Old Testament. We have civil authorities that, that in their best case, function under Judeo-Christian principles um, and, and respect individual rights. Um, do they live up to those ideals? No. But, but those are the ideals, right? And those are, those are what we accept and, 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 and want to see in our lives. And we have cultural stories that emphasize faith and self-determination and, and sort of a quasi-religious understanding of human government and the role that government should play. And if we lived in another country, we would have a different set of these filters. But wherever we live in human society, we have an understanding of what does it mean for somebody to come and be the king? What does it mean for somebody to come and be the savior? What does it mean for somebody to come and be God's anointed? And those filters allow us to see Christ and the Messiah just in part. And we're, we're bound to miss some things. I didn't, I didn't even mention the sectarian traditions, right? So depending on what faith tradition you grew up in, whether it was some version of Christian or not, there's, there's all sorts of traditions around church attendance and sacraments and prayer and, and scripture reading that also start to color what is it, who do, who do we see Christ as when he comes? There's another cultural tradition I think fits in here, just historically, that I just want to draw your attention to. The pattern of Jesus entering the city in this way, and this is why the, um, this is why the Pharisees were so um, intent that Jesus should silence the disciples. The pattern of Jesus entering Jerusalem with crowds of people around him cheering him would, would have been fairly familiar to this Roman culture. The Romans had something they called a triumph, right? And this is where we get the term triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus. A Roman triumph would happen in Rome, and it would happen when a general and an army had won some major victory. Because remember, the Roman Empire was expansionist, right? They are always going to conquer the next place. And sometimes this was harder than other times. And, and so if a general and an army had done a particularly good job of conquering something, whether maybe it's putting down a revolt or maybe it's expanding territory, that general would be given a triumph. And what that means is he was allowed to march into Rome with his army, and basically have a parade, but like it would be like a three-day parade. And there would be coins minted with the general's image on it that would be thrown to the crowd um, that would be sort of tokens, but, you know, they're all over the place now. They can kind of be used as money. And the, and the general would give gifts of food and, and whatever else out to people. And it was this idea of sharing the victory of that general and that army with all the people of Rome. And I won't say they were very common, but they were a well-recognized and sort of accepted part of the military tradition of Rome. And so that's the pattern here of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, surrounded by crowds cheering him. This is a triumph. It's a peasant triumph, right? It's not his army. There is no army. Um, and, but to do this during Passover, it represented a real um, 
kind of thumb in the eye of the Roman government. And the, the idea, okay, this, this prophet who's been out in the wilderness for three years doing things we hear about that are, you know, healing people, feeding people, calming storms, all these, all these legends and, that are going around about Jesus. Now he's coming into Jerusalem, the heart of that particular region, the, the regional capital, and he's surrounded by a crowd of cheering people, and he's marching in as a general. And by the way, there's a lot of extra people in Jerusalem right now, so it's, and, and there's a lot of weird, you know, just things happening. So sort of, a, Jerusalem could be considered a little bit of a powder keg at this time. And here comes this prophet from the countryside with these peasants who are cheering him. And if everybody gets caught up in this, it could turn, it could turn into a revolt. And this is exactly what the crowds with Jesus shouting Hosanna were, wanted to happen, right? They wanted to stir up the people in Jerusalem, all these extra people in Jerusalem. And now's our chance. The Romans did not have enough soldiers to keep the peace if we have a really concerted revolt on our hands. Um, and, and so the Pharisees see this, and this is why they're telling Jesus, you've got to keep these people quiet. The Romans, like, if, if the Romans feel threatened here, they're going to come down hard, and they're going to come down early, and they're going to, they could, this could be a massacre. And so that's what the, that's what the Pharisees were, were worried about. And that's why they wanted Jesus to silence his disciples. And that also plays into, again, a few days later, the shadow crowd that we're going to talk about in a little while of, of the crowd saying, crucify him. Because the other filter that is between the people in Jerusalem and Jesus is this specific political moment that's happening right here. They have been subjugated by the Romans for a couple hundred years right now. Although, in the back of their minds, about 200 years ago, there was a successful revolt. The, the Maccabees led a successful revolt against the Romans. Semi-successful. It wasn't long-term successful. But in the short term, they, they established their own little, little government, and then the Romans came down again, and, and, it, and it dissipated. So they've got this tyrannical empire, but a fairly recent example of being able to forge their own path and, and overthrow this empire. They have this, and it's not just a civil empire, it's a brutal foreign occupation. There's Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. There's Roman soldiers in all the surrounding countryside. There's a garrison. They're not just there because, oh, we might be needed elsewhere. They're there in case anything happens because Jerusalem and this area was known for just causing trouble. And so these Roman soldiers, they may or may not have been actual Romans, uh, eth um, ethnic Romans. They may have been soldiers pulled, drafted from Africa or Persia or, or Gaul. So, th so they weren't always, um, they, they could be a bit mercenary and they could be a bit kind of corrupt and out for themselves. And so you had these soldiers that were a symbol of Rome's power um, that at, at their whim could oppress people as needed. You, you hear about um, if you're compelled to walk a mile, walk a second mile. We call it going the extra mile. Well, that was because any of these soldiers could grab any person and say, you carry my stuff, and that person had to do it for a mile. That was the law. And then they had to walk a mile back. So, so at any time, you could be grabbed and, and basically put into service as an armor bearer for any of these Roman soldiers. And, and that's where Jesus said, hey, if they, if they compel you to go with them, go an extra mile. Um, and so you have that happening, this foreign occupation, this tyrannical empire. And, and you have these corrupt local authorities. You have Herod, you have Pilate, you have the chief priests who were, who were trying to walk a fine line between 
you know, being subservient to Rome, but also in their own way trying to protect, trying to protect the, the traditions that they found so valuable. Um, but either way, you have corruption, right? We, the, the publicans, the tax collectors, um, the, the, rich, the rich landowners, all of these things that Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and you had this unequal society because the corruption would lead to the, the um, amassing of wealth by a few, whether that was because they were politically connected or they had a lot of land and were able to farm it. And then you had a lot of poverty and the peasants kind of in the countryside who one of the reasons they followed Jesus was because they heard rumors that he was feeding people. And, and so you have this dichotomy in the society. So you've got an, an unequal society. You've got a polarized economy. You've got brutal foreign occupation. You've got an expansionist uh, totalitarian regime. And you have a fairly recent history of revolt. And, and into this violent, unfair, unequal, unethical, abusive society rides the most powerful being in the world, in the universe. A being who has called himself, in other, in other scriptures, the almighty God, the prince of peace. And he rides into the middle of all of this. And it's perfectly natural for the crowds to say, do something. This is, this is the time. And what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple. He knocks over the tables. And that's it. From, from a political, worldly perspective, you're writing the news article of what did Jesus do. That's what he did. And then he left. And he came back a few days later and they killed him. And he left again. And the people are still there with the violent, unequal, unethical, corrupt society being oppressed by Roman soldiers and Roman government. And Jesus is gone. And he says to them, I wish you knew what real peace was. I wish you knew how you got real peace. And, and we look at this today because, you know, we, we live in a society with issues. Now, I'm going to say our issues are we're like in the kiddie pool compared to what, what the Jewish people were dealing with um, during Jesus' lifetime. But we've got corruption. We've got growing violence. We've got blatant and unapologetic, unapologetic immorality. We've got unequal society and, and wealth in the, concentrated in the hands of We've got many of these same problems. And it's our filter, and it's natural that we turn to Jesus and we say, what are you going to do about it? You can do anything. What are you going to do about this? And Jesus says to us, I wish you knew where real peace comes from. Real peace doesn't come from the right laws. It doesn't come from the right judges. It doesn't come from equality. It doesn't come from a stronger government. It doesn't come from a weaker government. It doesn't come from any government until that final government that is on his shoulders. And there's one more filter that they had, that these crowds had, that missed, that caused them to miss what Jesus was for. And the crowd shouting, Hosanna, they were caught up in the energy and excitement and the possibility of sweeping change. They could picture a world different than it was right now. You could call them the early adopters. You could call them the progressives. They were energized by a potential social upheaval that would improve their lot in life, that would, that would lead to a significant improvement in their standard of living. And they were 
wrong to expect that from Jesus. That wasn't what he had come for. There was this other crowd, the shadow crowd, six days later, five days, depends how you count the days, shouting, crucify him. They, now, now we're told specifically they'd been stirred up by the priests and the religious leaders to, to shout, crucify him, crucify him. They were, they were currying favors with the established social tradition of the day, the powerful interests in their society. They were, they were aligning themselves with those. They were the voice of tradition. They viewed any major changes as a potential threat, not necessarily to their way of life. I'm sorry, not necessarily to their like, economic benefit, but their very way of life. They were afraid of, a, of, a, of the Romans just leveling it. The Romans, if they wanted to, could level the entire city, ship everybody out. And that's what, that's what the Pharisees were trying to avoid in their own way. That's what this crowd shouting crucify him were trying to avoid. They saw Jesus as a threat to the, the order that they felt like it's not great, but it could be a lot worse. And Jesus comes in and he could make it a lot worse. And they were wrong. And we play the part of both crowds in our lives. We can see Jesus as the one who's going to usher in a new earthly order that we can benefit from and that we can finally have that peace. Or we can see Jesus as a threat. He's going to disrupt our relationship. He's going to disrupt our economic well-being. He's going to disrupt all these things. And, and, and looking at Jesus, say, if I follow him, it could get really ugly for whatever reason. So both of these crowds had their cultural filters, their political filters, their economic filters, their social filters, and they, they put those on Jesus, or they saw, now I'm mixing my metaphors, they saw Jesus through these filters and they misunderstood what he could do for them. Because the truth is, Jesus will bring peace. It may not look like how we define peace. It may not look like the world around us changing in that moment. And if we follow in the footsteps of either of these crowds, we, we miss the opportunity to see who Jesus is the change he really can bring about in our lives and the peace that he really can bring through that change. And, and so the natural question, which I'm not going to answer, so, so, how, so who is it? Well, how do we see him? And I'm going to point you back to the scriptures. We see him through the words of the Bible, not just the gospels, right? The, the Old Testament, all the metaphors that the, that the Jews put, put stock in. And like I said, they were accurate metaphors and we have accurate, all those things can start to paint the picture of who Jesus is. But if that's as far as we go, we have to have that personal connection with Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. Yvonne mentioned the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's how we see Jesus. We see him through the Bible. We see him through our connection that, that the third person of the Godhead actually indwells us and communes with us and turns our hearts towards the real Jesus. And I'm going to leave you with one more verse. This is Psalm 62. Actually, four more verses. Psalm 62, 5. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And that is where peace comes from. Now, 
I can't give you a formula. I can't give you mechanics of how to get peace, but I can say, with God as your refuge and your expectation from him, that is where peace comes from. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.